listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm so glad to be with you in this space and in this moment, and I'm glad to have you with me. In the late 19th century, uh, there was a British statesman named Joseph Chamberlain who coined what came to be known as the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. It's funny they call it the Chinese curse because it has no origins in China. The guy made it up himself. And it's funny to me in some ways that they call it a curse because certainly interesting times usually means there's conflict and confusion and upset in the world. But as we're all learning in this moment, in this very interesting moment, there's also possibility and inspiration and, and, and change and challenge. It's funny because I think a lot of people of my generation look back at our parents or, or the people that came before them, our grandparents who lived through the Great Depression, or who lived through World War II, with a little bit of envy. You know, they talk about the greatest generation. But of course, what made that generation great was that they suffered and that they came through a hard struggle. And now that we're in the midst of our own hard struggle, I, I think we're seeing that as painful as it is and as painful as it's going to be, there's also opportunity and hope and goodness that's, that's emerging, character that's being revealed. Uh, so I, I hope that I hope that if we get to look back on this, when we look back on this, it will be one of those times where we say, yeah, it was a curse, but it was also a blessing. It was also an opportunity. One thing I know for sure is that this episode of Humanize Me is going to be interesting. I got two great things for you. One of them, I don't, it's, one of them's just a tease. Um, and one of them is, is a conversation with our old friend, Michael Dowd. He's been on the podcast before. I don't think anyone was ready for him back then. He's self-described apocaloptimist, a guy who was saying, listen, it's all unsustainable the way we're living. There's going to be a problem. I see trouble up on the horizon. And, and I love talking to Michael back then because I'm, you know, I've been a collapse predictor for a long time. And, and back then, it felt like our duty to try to warn people. Now I feel like sometimes it's our duty to keep quiet because people are so upset. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to hear from you. We want to hear it's going to be over in a week. We want to hear we'll be fine by Easter. We want to hear by like the end of the summer at the very least. But the truth of the matter is, is that people like Michael Dowd have been thinking about this for a long time and, and they've been predicting a really difficult change in our civilization. And I, I, as soon as the coronavirus hit, I thought, this is, this is the beginning. And I, I thought, I got to talk to Michael. I said, yeah, you know, I wondered if I would be able to reach him because I figured everybody would want to talk to Michael because he's ahead of the curve on this stuff. But like everybody else, he's holed up somewhere with his laptop and I was able to reach him and he said, sure, I'll talk to you. And 
It was a joyful conversation for me. Not joyful in the sense of like, isn't it great what's happening? But joyful in the sense of talking to somebody who's looked this thing, this the, the worst possibility in the eye and walked away feeling, I don't want to say optimistic. I, think, I, I don't think he would call himself an apocaloptimist anymore. I think he would call himself a post-doom champion because I think what he's really excited about doing is communicating that there's a way of living in the shadow of trouble, in the shadow of death that is full of joy and, and, and hope. And, and I just, we, I loved talking to him about it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, what's the word? Bump it up anymore. I'm just going to tell you, I think you'll like this conversation. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about a conversation I had with John a couple of weeks ago. Look, we've had people on the show before that we're here to talk about psychedelics. And I've made it clear that I'm fascinated and interested in this stuff. And you've also know that I've had my son Roman on the show a couple of times. And Roman's always pushing me and pushing me to, to, to grow and to, and to learn more and, to, and to, to kind of live out my values. And a couple of weeks ago, I was in California right before everything shut down, visiting with Roman and his fiance, Ali. Marty and I were there. And... In the course of the conversation, the psychedelic thing came up again. And Roman said, you know, why don't you just, I've got some, I've got access to some stuff. Why don't you just try it? I think it's time. And I did. It was time. I'd been thinking about it. I told myself at some point in the year 2020, this would be my year to do it. I sort of had a sense of foreboding about my opportunity being foreclosed in, in, in the next months to come. And I thought, this is, this is a moment, like, strange as it seems, this is a moment where I want to stop and explore. Not what's out there, but what's inside me. And so, as I told John recently, last time we talked, I said, he said, what's new? And I said, well, remember that psychedelic experience? Uh, I had it. I, it's funny because I thought I was going to do psilocybin, magic mushrooms. And at the moment of truth, when it was time to ingest the mushrooms, all of a sudden it dawned on me, wait, I'm allergic to mushrooms. Like, I guess I, I was thinking magic mushrooms, like that was a euphemism for psilocybin, but like, they're really mushrooms. And when I looked at them, I thought, this would be really bad if like I was in the middle of some kind of ego dissolution experience and all of a sudden I just was violently ill the way I get when I eat mushrooms. And so we ended up swapping those out. And for a person of my age, the weird thing was, even the word, even even the phrase is hard to say, but like I ended up doing LSD. And uh, when I told John that, he flicked on the recorder and he said, tell me all about it. And I did. And so we have a whole episode in which I talk about my psychedelic experience, my LSD trip. And if you're interested in that, this is why it's a tease. 
um, John said, listen, man, we have been getting so much wonderful support from the Patreon people. People have been actually upping their pledges in this time, even though, even though people are, are, are worried and economically kind of nervous. He said, people are sort of saying, hey, the kind of work that we do, the kind of hope we pump out, the kind of ideas and thinking and community building that we do is, is, is more important now than ever. So a lot of people have been stepping up to the plate. He said, listen, we should just, we should put that episode on Patreon for the folks that support the podcast. Now, if that bums you out because you're not one of those folks, listen, I'm going to let you in on a secret. You could support the podcast for a dollar a month. You could do that. And then you could cancel your subscription after you heard the episode. You, you, that would get you into Patreon. You could listen to the episode. Then you could cancel. It would cost you a buck. Um, that would be a crummy thing to do. Because what you ought to do is get on there for a buck and then just let it be. You know that. Um, but in any case, I'm just telling you, John and I had this expansive conversation and to say that using LSD was a life changing experience for me would be an understatement. And so all I'm going to tell you is, is I sent the episode over to Roman who was, you you, you know, and I, I, I said, listen to it. Do you think I captured it? Cause he was there and uh, he guided me through it. And, and I said, do you think he's captured? He says, I think that really, I think he's, I think he got it good. He said, I think it's, I think it's good. And so we got a good Roman approved episode about my LSD trip waiting for you on Patreon. This is your chance to support the podcast and to hear something a little strange. All right. So there, there's the tease. Now here's the conversation between me and Michael Dowd, which is all about what's going on right now and what it means. I hope you dig it. I'll see you on the other side. Okay. And have done so. Okay. So get your act together. All right. Because this is this is happening. Well, what, what's a treat to me is uh, you. Uh, I need you to send after this. Is, oh no, this is just audio. Uh, well, I may still do it. I may end up using this as a post doom conversation with Michael Dowd, in conversation with Bart Campolo, because you're you know, uh, I, I've not been interviewed by anybody, and so I'm going to cover some of the kinds of stuff I've been talking about. Anyway, let's go. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so where are you, man? Connie and I are in, or just outside of Eureka, California. In fact, I'm speaking to you from a parking lot at Humboldt State University, uh, the library. The whole campus is closed down, but fortunately, the internet's still going, and so I'm parked in a parking spot and uh, got good internet here because the house that we're staying at is on Pacific Lumber Camp Road. It's this rural road surrounded by redwood trees. It's just stunningly gorgeous. I mean, if you got to be sequestered somewhere, <laughs> it just doesn't get any better. Uh, we literally take walks every day, either any direction we go out of the house we've got gorgeous walks among among redwoods um but we only have a satellite dish at that house so we don't have good bandwidth oh wow that's got to be a drag in this moment well it's only a drag in the sense that you know we do any we don't do videos 
uh, and we don't, you know, like for example, we have a post doom conversation that we're going to be loading up or, you know, uploading to YouTube and it takes two hours here at the university, but it takes 10 hours trying to do it at the house and eats up all the bandwidth. So yeah, we've, we've adjusted, um, and we're doing more reading and, you know, it does email fine and, you know, anything that doesn't require huge amount of bandwidth, but uh, zoom calls, uh, it's sketchy. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Wow. Okay. And, and were you, did you get to there because you saw things we, shutting down or, no, or were you not, already there? Yeah, not yet. See, we're, we have an itinerary on our great story. Our, our main website is thegreatstory.org, thegreatstory.org. And there's an itinerary that you can hit and you can see where we're scheduled to be two years out. And we're typically in somebody's second home or vacation home for anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. Um, and then we speak in churches and colleges and universities and synagogues within about a two hour radius of that. So we were in the, we were here in just outside of Eureka, California in somebody's second home. They live in Southern California. They come up two weeks every two months. So, cause they've got two adult sons that live in the area here. So when we're not, when they're not using the place, they've said that we can use it. So we were here in August and September, and then we spent October through mid-February up in the Pacific Northwest on Whidbey Island um, and uh, with some people who have a mother-in-law wing of their house and it's, you know, its own separate interests and everything else. It's awesome. That, that's where our mail gets forwarded to us from. And uh, we were there four and a half months and then we're back down here now. So that was already scheduled. Now, we left the Pacific Northwest just before sort of the coronavirus sort of really sort of started taking off there. And then we got here and pretty quickly, all the uh, scheduled events that I had throughout this year got canceled in terms of being there in the flesh, but I've rescheduled most of them in terms of being on zoom and that sort of thing. So it's, you know, and it, the, this couple that live in Southern California that own this home, they're probably not going to come up. So we could be sequestered here for a while. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So here's the deal. You were literally the first person I wanted to talk to when the reality of this moment set in because you're one of my only friends who, with whom I had that conversation years ago and said, yeah, it's a setup. It's like, it'll be this, it'll be that, but it's coming. Yeah. Thanks. Um, And, and so, you you know, you were the, I, I, I think I jokingly, when I, when I, when I reached out to you, was like, are you, are, have you started your, I told you so tour yet? I know that was so cute. I told Connie, I said, yeah, he reached out and said he wanted to talk to me. And then I didn't respond right away. Like three or four days later, he said, uh, are you just too busy with your, I told you so uh, tour? <laughs> and we both bust out laughing. No, it, this is not a situation where you, you, you pride yourself on being right, you know, because being right means painful stuff for most people. And it, it means even confronting existential issues like mortality and death and shit. So it's, it's scary stuff, but yes, it, my life purpose has now been for seven years, helping people understand the patterns of the rise and fall of civilizations, helping people understand what contraction and collapse of civilizations and empires look like. And what typically how the politics unwinds and gets crazy, the economics unwinds and gets crazy and things like pandemics are inevitable. It's only a matter of when. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a sobering, but it's also an amazing time because, you know, when you're faced 
when somebody, as you know, I was diagnosed with cancer 10 years ago and I had a tumor the size of my fist and my spleen. And there were, there was about a month, month and a half before the chemo took effect that we looked at the possibility I could die in the next eight months. And when you, when you're confronted with something like that, man, it just clarifies shit. I mean, all of a sudden stuff you thought was important, you realize that ain't important at all. And it really clarifies what is important and especially what matters most. So what doesn't really matter, but you thought it did, what matters and what matters most becomes crystal clear when you're looking at the possibility that you could die in the next year, two, three, four, five years. And that's where our species is at and where most of us are at. Yeah, it's it's interesting for me because I've spent a lot of time thinking about death and and talk to a lot of people about it and counsel a lot of people around it and so the existential nature of this thing is is very familiar to me mm-hmm. um but i think what and what a lot of people say to me is i'm not afraid of being dead mm-hmm. but i'm afraid of dying yeah, like they're true. afraid of the process. And I right. think that when I look at the global scenario that we're facing right now, mm-hmm. if somebody said, hey, you know, 100 years from now, there, instead of 7 billion people on the planet, there'll be 2 billion right. and they'll be living without airplanes and things will be radically different and the local economies will be the thing. And, you know, I, I would sort of go like, oh, I'm not afraid of that. Mm-hmm. But if you say to me, but in the meantime, you're going to have to watch 5 billion people perish. Right. In, I go like, ah, yeah, it's the dying. Yeah. It's, 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 not, it's not the death of this civilization that bothers me. Yeah. It's the dying. Yeah. And I, I, I think for that's where this coronavirus feels to me like it's the beginning of the dying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think it is. And not only from coronavirus, I think over the next year, many, many more people around the world, and especially those of us who have the furthest to fall, those of us that are in this so-called developed nations, that is that we're so dependent upon complex supply chains and complex infrastructure and and economies that work, um, we're more vulnerable paradoxically. And so we're likely to, you know, the nations, so-called the developing nations, those are closer to subsistence, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to have as far to fall. They're still going to be tragedy. But the thing about these times, because grief, I mean, most of us aren't sociopaths and psychopaths. So we feel compassion, we feel empathy. And I think that no matter how rapidly things collapse, no matter how slowly things could possibly collapse, I mean, we're looking at this is overdetermined. I mean, coronavirus is only one aspect. You've got resource depletion and overpopulation and, you know, species extinction, rapid, fast species extinction and climate chaos wigging out like so rapidly that you can't grow food from year to year because one year you're wet, one year you're dry, one year you're hot, one year you're cold because of the jet stream looping out so weird. So our hearts are going to break. Most of us, our hearts are going to break. We're going to feel grief, but we wouldn't feel grief if we didn't love and we wouldn't feel grief if we weren't profoundly interconnected. And I think there's a tenderizing of the heart 
that are good. I mean, I think more people are going to be living meaningful, genuinely joyful lives in the midst of contraction and chaos and challenges because we're going to have to support each other. We're going to, you're, you're not, most people are not going to let their neighbor and their neighbor's kids starve to death. They'll rather die with their neighbor than protect their shit against their neighbor. You know, this is just, these Mad Max scenarios are the least likely in terms of what we understand from previous contracting, collapsing civilizations and empires. It, it, no, it's, it's interesting. We may have jumped ahead of ourselves because, you know, I, I've, I've been looking at my, you know, emails and things people are sending me and my, my daughter comes over and shows me the, the things on Instagram and mm -hmm. there's, there's this outpouring of inspirational stuff and encouragement yeah. and people talk quarantine humor and all of this <laughs> yes. and, and, and fun videos and celebrities donating millions of dollars. And it feels to me like people are treating this like the mother of all snowstorms. Right, right, uh, right. You know, where everybody bands together and like, we go like, we'll get through this a couple of weeks. We'll be on the other side <laughs> and we'll get back to normal and we'll, you know, we'll all laugh about it. And, and so people are, I, I don't feel like anybody's pacing themselves because I think that there's been a lot of mixed messaging, but I think a lot of people think that the real issue here is just this virus. And once we get the vaccine and we get this under control, we can go back to normal. Yes, of course, that's where most people are at. No question. And for good, for, for understandable reasons. I mean, the civil religion of progress, the secular religion of perpetual progress has been the major faith of the industrial world for 250 years. And all the other religions pale in comparison. And it is a radical confront to your worldview to a shift out of human centeredness where you, you don't think that you're the, you know, that our species is the center of the universe and the be all and end all and that we're the point of evolution and all the rest of that. I mean, that is in itself, every human centered, every anthropocentric civilization in human history has collapsed. It's, it's self-destructed. It's commit suicide, whatever you, however you want to call it. No civilization can be sustainable. No culture can be sustainable if it's human centered. The only forms of human no, civilizations. No, wait. See, now that's where, see, like then. Oh, it's a fact. Uh, it's an evidential fact. Yeah, but I mean, like every civilization in human history collapsed or got taken over by somebody else. No, no civilization has made it. So the idea of like, I could say like no, 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 every no, no, civilization no, 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 no. that yeah, believed yeah, yeah, right. in love and kindness has Bart, collapsed. Bart, no. Okay. Let me back up. Okay. First of all. You got to understand the difference between 98% of human history when human cultures, not civilizations, cultures lived accountable. They lived accountable to the past. They lived accountable to the future. And they lived accountable to what we erroneously call nature. It would be more accurate to call it God or Gaia or just reality, primary reality. But they treated the biosphere, what we would call in a secular language as the biosphere, as a divine thou. And you bet your ass, you need to live in right relationship to the biosphere or you die. And there have been, for 98% of human history, that's the way cultures, we call it sustainable, but that's really a not good word, accountable cultures lived. They lived in a pro-future way. They didn't destroy everything they depended upon. So the soil, the forest, the water, the life upon which they depended was preserved upon pain of death. It was the most important thing. And then you start seeing with agriculture, only in the last 2% of human history, you start seeing agriculture and this sense of domination, the sense that we can control nature. Now it's no longer a divine thou. We think of it as an it rather than a thou. And we start really gaining a lot of progress, human-centered progress. 
and we think that it's going to last forever. But we have 115 examples of previous unsustainable civilizations. Every one of them became great in different ways, and every one of them collapsed, often because of ecological overshoot. They used too many resources, they polluted stuff too much, and they collapsed. Of course, sometimes war and whatever. There were other volcanoes. But the vast majority, and, and again, you don't have to take my word on this. The BBC did a massive thing a year and a half ago, uh, their, their Deep Civilization series. Uh, Luke Kemp wrote a piece called um, in the BBC called Are We on the Road to Civilizational Collapse? And he answers, of course, yes, but he has a chart that lists 88 civilizations between 4000 BCE and 1000 of the Common Era. So he doesn't look before 4000. Oh, yeah, I mean, and you don't have to, like, you don't have to convince me. Right. That post-agriculture, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like post-agriculture starts 10,000 years ago. No civilization based on agriculture or the cool technological things that grow out of agriculture, like writing, um, you know. But I'm talking about the software. I'm talking about the mindset. I'm just saying. Anthropocentrism is unsustainable. Ecocentrism is sustainable in all cases. Okay. Period. but, 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 But the thing is, is that ecocentrism that hunter-gatherer societies practiced. And early horticultural, like permaculture 1.0. Okay. Th- but those, those, that kind of ecocentrism uh-huh. was never combined with culture. Like well, of the, course it was. Like, like what we, re- or what we recognize as, you know, like, literature, music, like the, like the kind of stuff that we recognize, that we value. In terms of high civilization, you're absolutely right. I mean, we don't, we don't know of any sustainable literate cultures. Literate and, and, cultures and so this is my point, Michael, is, is that I don't think anybody that's hoping for the future of humanity right now, mm-hmm. including I think probably you and me, are, are willing to sacrifice literature or writing or um, – but we don't have to. Knowledge is cumulative. So we now know, we don't just believe, we now know that life-centeredness is the only thing that lasts. So but the only I'm, notion but, 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 of, pro- let me finish, let me finish. The only notion of progress, the only notion of well-being that has any future is where you measure well-being, where you measure progress by how well the soil is doing decade by decade, how well the forests are doing decade by decade, what are the other species doing decade by decade. Those measures of progress, you can still have literate cultures that do that. And we now know that. So that's the nature of science. That's the nature of cumulative knowledge. So it's we not don't like know we, that. We don't know that. There, nobody has yet. Sh- nobody has yet overlaid writing and higher culture on an ecocentric approach and seen it work. We, we don't have any record well, of any civilization that's done that. That's true. And, and, and frankly, I mean, if you ask me honestly, I think that we're, there's probably only a 20% chance that humanity at all, even in pockets, will survive, say, the next 100 years because of the wigging out of the methane in the Arctic. And, you know, if we see a four degree Celsius, five degree Celsius, six degree Celsius rise in average global temperature over the course of the century, humans are gone. Most mammals are gone. Most, you know, most vertebrates are gone. We we can't survive that level. I mean, it's going to be a great 
it's going to be great for alligators and some reptiles and certainly tardigrades and moss and ferns. I mean, life will continue, no question, and life will rebound. I mean, one of the, what I often say is even worst case scenario, we go extinct, we take 95% of the other species down with us, and uh, we impact, you know, and, and, and our new, all of our nuclear power, all of our nuclear power plants melt down. Worst case scenario, okay? Within a month on the cosmic century timeline, if you have the whole universe story, the beginning of the universe to now as a as a hundred years, by mid-January of the one hundredth year, Earth will have recovered. Or no, early February. I'm sorry. Early February. That's like ten to twelve or fourteen million years from now, Earth will recover. So once you once you shift out of human centeredness, it's like you can relax into life. That's the thing. You vastly overestimate my concern for the planet and you vastly underestimate my loyalty to the human tribe. Like I, like I, you know, I'm, I, I know, I know that human centeredness is problematic, but I'm no, it's suicidal. It's ecocidal. So uh, you, human centeredness is ecocidal period. No, there's no evidence in the history of humanity of otherwise human centeredness, human centered measures of well-being but my, but Michael, are Michael, enlightened human centeredness. Even if I was the most like, like for instance, when I'm talk when I'm counseling with somebody who's very unhappy and, and sometimes very selfish, mm-hmm. um, the paradox is I'll say to them is if you really want what's best for yourself, you're going to have to care about other people. Absolutely. And I'm 100% with you there. When and, you expand and when, your and when sense talk- of self. Exactly. Right, exactly. And when I'm talking to somebody who's very, very outwardly focused and they're, they have no boundaries and stuff like that, I'm mm-hmm. saying like, mm-hmm. you know, in this, in, in, this, in this virus, I'm talking to some doctors and scientists that are just, they're not sleeping. They're just they're like, how can I sleep? How can I take a day off? Like, right, exactly. And I'm sort of like, yeah. if you really want to care for people over the long yeah. haul, you have to look after yourself. Like yeah, there's exactly. this, the, the paradox is if you're all about other people, you have to get selfish. And if you're incredibly selfish, you have to care about other people. And so it's the same way where like you say, Bart, you're human centered. They go like, yeah, if you're really human centered, you keep track of the soil. You keep, if you're really human. That's why I tried to, yeah, that's why I tried to be specific. It's human centered measures of well-being. It's human centered uh, measures of progress. Okay. That's much, much more important because I think that the thing is as, as, I expect the cockroaches to be more loyal to the other cockroaches than to me. I expect the bears to be more loyal to the other bears than to me. And I, and I'm human and I'm more loyal to the humans. And so you can tell me that all the other species will make it if we just exit, exit the exit reality. And I go like, yeah, I'm not, that's, that's not a good enough bargain for me. Like I care about the people. And so I think, I think the question that I'm, like the moment that I'm in right now and the one I want to ask you about is I think even if you're optimistic about the future of our species, because the weird thing is, is that I'm not optimistic about, I know you're not, I know you're not, but even if you were, even if someone was and they believed that like that horrible four degree scenario takes place and they go like, yeah, as long as there's, as long as there's alligators, there'll be some Elon Musk type in a spaceship sitting on, on, on the planet, figuring out a way to like harvest the alligator and eat him. It and like, happen. I'm, I'm just, Elon I'm just Musk, saying yeah, the, the techno, the techno utopians will be the ones that I am concerned about the most because it's the Steven Pinkers and the Kevin Kelly's and the Elon Musk's and the Ray Kurzweil's 
that if you understand history, those who assume that, he, that the economics and the technological, whatever was the hype thing of that culture was going to continue, they're the ones that are hardest hit emotionally and financially when reality bites. Oh, and, and there's going to be hard hit. Uh, what I'm saying is, even if they were right, even if they were right, even if there was, even if humanity had a guaranteed pass and like it would come down to like five, you know, 500 super rich, super smart, super techie people that figured out a way to like create, create a, a biosphere that they could live in until the rest of the planet regenerated itself in millions of years. Even if that were true, that's still a, like, that's still a devastating reality. Like, I don't need to predict the extinction of the human, of, of all humanity to be discouraged. Like I'm, I can be discouraged just by the contraction. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. That's, I, can, I mean, that's why I was motivated six months ago to begin what is the major legacy project probably for the rest of my life, which is this post doom conversation series, postdoom.com. And I'm having conversations with the leading people around the world who get the big picture. They get climate chaos. They get abrupt climate change. They get over depletion of you know, all the resources we depend Peak on. Peak oil, they get it all. Peak oil, yeah. they get it all. They get all of it. And they get, most of them are, it's amazing. I recorded like 40 of them prior to a coronavirus era. And Connie, we've been editing them and uploading them to YouTube. And it's like, these are more relevant than ever. It's like coronavirus or a pandemic is simply a symptom of ecological overshoot. And so these are the most inspiring conversations because everybody's moved through whatever grief and anger and frustration they've needed to move through to come to that place of inspired local action, generous, compassionate, local engagement with the people that you can make a difference with and not trying to save the world on some kind of large scale. And this is what I want to talk to you about. Okay. This cool. is the, okay. Because, and, and let me, cause first of all, that post doom concept, it's, it's not necessarily post catastrophe. It's right. post knowing the catastrophe's coming. Exactly. And and I think that a lot of people right now are are even in this corona thing. I'm again, I'm seeing people expend themselves in a way that makes me think that they think it's a snowstorm that it's going to be over and we're going to get back to normal. Yeah, they do. They do. Yes. And I think like, oh, Corona's going to kick off a depression, economic yep. depression, and that's yep. going to kick off an environmental problem. And Correct. that's, you know, and, and that's going to leave us more susceptible for the next virus. And like, yep. like, I think this is the beginning of the, the, the worst time. It is. No question. I mean, that's what I've spent the last seven and a half years of my life studying. So I understand it really, really well. And the people you talk to on that post-Doom uh, site and on that podcast, they all get that. And yes. and so like one of the questions I, I, I see you always ask them, you always ask them is like, you know, when did you figure it out? You know, <laughs> like, like how long ago was it that you realized that right. um, the global predicament Yes, and, exactly. and did it happen all at once or did it happen in steps? And like, I could answer that question. You know, I remember when, I remember when it dawned on me and it was after watching that crazy movie collapse with, uh, Michael, oh, Michael uh, Rupert, Michael yeah. Rupert, who's, you know, a, a, a wild, crazy journalist, but like he, you know, I started doing research and, and, and like within about a, a week and a half, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. 
Yeah, right, exactly. So, so, so all the people you're talking to, they've done that and they've gone through this grief stage that I think a lot of people, even in this coronavirus moment, have not yet entered into the grief. They haven't yet realized this is not an aberration. This is the beginning of the new normal. Yes, exactly. You've you've nailed it exactly right on, Bart. And that's why I just saw something, I think it was in the Washington Post yesterday or day before yesterday, that something like 50% of Americans are already reporting mental health problems or issues related to this. And as you said, that's just dealing with it, thinking of it like the big snowstorm and that they're out of work and they don't know how to support their family and all that's true. But it seems to, I had been saying up until two months ago or a month and a half ago with coronavirus, I had been saying that why I, why this post doom conversation series gives me such joy and is so meaningful is that it seems to me every season there's, you know, five to 10 million more people that are ready for this conversation than were ready last season. Well, that's now outdated. Now it's almost like every week there's another few million people that are ready to have this conversation. And that's going to be more and more as people realize this isn't a snowstorm. We're not going to get back to normal. The economy's not going to get buzzing the way it was. And holy shit. So we are in the early stages of what I believe will be the greatest mental health crisis in human history. And so people who can serve as guides and chaplains and, and ministers and, you know, shamans, you know, but basically people who can serve in a caring, generous, compassionate, hey, I've been there, brother, here, hold my hand. Sponsors, AA sponsors. Yes, exactly. Yeah, sponsors, exactly. So, so, okay, so Mr. Sponsor, what, you've been talking to people that have gone through the grief Mm -hmm. and that have come out, not optimistic, but committed to doing positive things. And being in as positive a state as possible. I mean, one of the things is that a lot of people don't realize is that hope is actually the worst thing. There's a profound difference between hope and trust. And, and what a post-doom conversation is, is a conversation that helps you or another person transform hope into trust transform fear and anger and and confusion and resentment into compassion and generosity and what do you mean by trust what do you mean by trust trusting reality trusting life as it is trusting life on life's terms not as you wish it was now you see like i trust the psychopath that lives down the street that if i if i walk into his house he'll murder me i trust that like i know how he is i know what he'll do that but that's not that's not an encouraging like trust there's trusting somebody to be what they are, and then there's trusting somebody to, to do something good for you. And yeah, which, which kind of trust are you talking about? I'm talking about trusting that which is humanity's creator, sustainer, and end. Whether you use mythic language for that or secular language, it doesn't matter. But trusting the biosphere, trusting the wisdom of the universe, trusting, trusting it the wisdom to do of what? nature, trusting, trusting it, to, it to, do be, to be as it has been for billions of years, because there's wisdom, there's intelligence, there, there are systems at work that have been at work working out the bugs through natural selection for billions of years. And it's the failure to understand the nested nature of reality, subatomic particles within atoms, within molecules, and so on, the nested nature of reality, and that each level has its own ways of being that need to be honored by the smaller parts that are part of it. 
And so humans, that's why ecocentrism, that is treating the biosphere as a greater thou, not a lesser it, is the key because then you're looking to how is this biosphere organized and how can we as humans live in harmony, in cooperation, in a, in a mutually enhancing human-Earth relationship. That's thrivable. When we start treating the living world biosphere as merely a source of resources and a, and a toilet, a place for our waste, then we guarantee our own self-destruction. Well, I mean, that last sentence. So I it's trusting with. reality. As you know, I use the word reality and God interchangeably, and I spell God G-O-D-D-E. What I'm meaning is a mythic name for reality, for life, reality with a personality, not a person outside reality. And the idea that religions are about beliefs you know, believing in otherworldly entities or disbelieving in otherworldly entities. Well, that's one of the reasons why we're in the mess we are. Well, and again, because like in indigenous a, cultures, it's not about belief. It's about relating to reality I, in a, in a sustainable you. way. I hear you on one level. And then, and then I think to myself, wait a second, wait a second. I don't trust, like, I don't trust reality. Um, I mean, I trust reality to be what it is, but like if I was a dinosaur and I trusted reality, reality took me out. Reality left me behind. And so you, you said like, well, you're a human being. If reality wants, reality will let you behind. And I go like, okay, that's why I don't trust it. Do whatever you'd like, brother. Have whatever worldview you'd like. What I, all I know is that the, the, the basic stance that the, you know, I trust reality is the, ba you know, that's a, a secular way of saying I have faith in God. I trust life as it really is. So that is when life shows up, however the fuck life shows up in my life, I don't go into resentment. I don't go into confusion. I don't, I, well, sometimes confusion, like curiosity, like what the hell's happened? What's this about? But then I look for ways that how, how, how can I interpret this as uh, the universe conspiring on my behalf? Is the universe conspiring on my behalf? Fuck, I have no idea. No, I think the universe would just as soon kill me. But if I act as if the universe is conspiring on my behalf, man, do I love my life. See, that's so interesting because like to me, I, I guess I'm more of a stoic than you are because I, I think that what I want to do with reality is accept it with equanimity. Like that's just what I'm talking like, about. That's what I mean by trust. But that, Accepting trust, with equanimity. Trust, okay, but, Bart, I don't want to waste time in this precious conversation arguing over words. Accepting with equanimity works for me. Let's move on. Okay, so it is what it is. Yeah, and, it just and, it is and, what it is. And, and and but the other thing is, I sense the people that you talk to in the post doom conversation. I could be wrong about this, but I sense that the majority of them share my loyalty, founded or unfounded loyalty, to the human species. And would say that they would be willing to bend over backwards and do a bunch of stuff to buy us another hundred years. Or, no, man, you couldn't be wrong. They I mean, would. There, there, there are probably a few that are like that. But I would say that this group of, you know, the, the 55 that I've already had conversations with, I've got another 30 or 40 scheduled, or they're not scheduled yet, but people who have said that they want to be a part of the series. But the 55 or so that I've already had conversations with, and certainly the 25 that we've already edited and put up line, to a person and a woman, man, whatever, they're ecocentric. They're, they're not human centered. I mean, that doesn't mean they don't have a profound love of humanity. These are not misanthropes. These are not people who think that humanity is just simply a plague. These are people who profoundly love life and love human, the human expression of life and love the human species and love and would, and, and are doing everything they can in their locations to ensure that the, that the soil is as healthy as possible. The other species are as healthy as possible and the humans are as healthy as possible. 
possible. So they're engaged in their communities, but being loyal to humanity doesn't mean thinking that we are more important and better and and uh, that we're what it's all about. I don't think we're objectively more important or what it's all about. I'm, I'm saying I subjectively Sure, From and my I do too, and we all do. Yes, exactly. And so what I'm saying is like these people on your podcast, like like you see, like I don't subjectively think my family is more important than any anybody else's family or than nature or life itself, okay? But I got to tell you something. If like the prisoner's dilemma is there's a nuclear plant there that's going to explode and kill 5 billion people or my granddaughter on this other track, I'm probably going to let the nuclear thing explode. Like I'm pretty loyal to my granddaughter. Like yeah, I, I feel what you feel. I have a nine-year-old granddaughter, and I've got a, my youngest daughter, Miriam, Miriam Joy, who lives in Ann Arbor, or actually just outside of Ann Arbor. She's due to give birth in a month and a half from now. And so I am I, I, I get what you're saying. And I also understand abrupt climate change, which is, goes way beyond uh, coronavirus. And what abrupt climate change means is that things are already out of our control. Absolutely. Absolutely. Climate change means like 10,000 years of climate change in a human lifetime. Yeah, we're in this. Yeah. It's it's inescapable. And it's it's quite likely to bring about our uh, either our extinction or just, you know, a few hundred pockets of humanity surviving in outposts around the world. Either one, you're looking at the, you know, a 95% reduction in human uh, or more in human population over the course of the next 30 to 70 years. Okay. So, and that breaks my heart. Yeah. But it's also way outside. Uh, that's why I put my faith, my trust, my my acceptance with equanimity in evolution and ecology. If there's anything that's holy in my world, it's evolution and ecology. Ecology okay, so, is my theology. Yes, I, I I believe you, and I, I you know I I I I accept that I accept that you accept that. So <laughs> here's what I'm wondering though: all these sure. people you're talking to. Mm-hmm. When they go through the grief, when they recognize that the life that they grew up in is is not going to be available to people after them, right. Right. That, that it's going to be radically different, yeah. and that this that that, that that the wheels are already set in motion and they will not be stopped. Yeah. When they recognize this, what is the post doom what is the what is what is the you know if you're the if if i'm showing up at my first doomaholics anonymous <laughs> meeting and you're the guy in the front right, like right. what have you got to tell me yeah that, that like how am i supposed to get what, what what do i do on the other side of my grief once i decide right. What, what, right. what's what's up what's ahead okay this is a beautiful question brother so I'll share the collective intelligence that has emerged to date. So we're speaking on April 3rd of 2020. And I've been for about eight months testing out definitions of doom and definitions of post-doom and trying to get a a larger collective intelligence sense. Does this work for you? Can you think of any way to improve this? So here's what we collectively uh, have come up with so far. So doom has three definitions. Post-doom has three definitions. So doom. A common feeling of ug or dread upon realizing that technological progress and economic growth and development are the root of our predicament, not our way out. Second definition, a name for the anxiety and fear called forth when living in a coronavirus era 
that triggers an economic recession or depression. And third, the midpoint between denial and regeneration, with or without us. I mean, life will regenerate. That's what life does. Even if we go extinct, life will regenerate. And so most people keep themselves from feeling doom because they see this door and they think it's the end. They think they're going to have to live the rest of their lives in despair. So they see this door and above the door, it says W-A-S-F. And they know what that means. We are so fucked. So they don't go through that door because they think it's the end. But what they don't realize is that if you allow yourself to feel the stages of grief, first denial, there's no problem here, you know, and then a sense of, 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 of anger, you know, or bargaining. Actually, the first one is bargaining. Like if we just all convert to, you know, renewables, if, if we just all elect the right person or whatever, and then anger and then depression and then acceptance. But with acceptance, that only takes you to the midpoint. The midpoint is that door. When you allow yourself to go through that doom door, you realize, holy shit, there's an entire universe. In other words, doom is the midpoint between denial and regeneration. And on the other side of the doom door are these spheres of gratitude, spheres of compassionate, generous local action, and profound meaningfulness. And that's what every, everybody that I've been interviewing and, and having conversations with in this post-doom conversation series, they've all gone through that post-doom doorway. And there's there's a lot, there's Buddhist ways, there's Hindu ways, there's atheist ways, there's, there's, there's no religious or philosophical system that is actually any better or really, for that matter, any necessarily worse, other than some forms of fundamentalism um, or extreme human-centeredness, uh, and that can happen even among humanists. Um, that aren't going to give you the emotional, psychological, uh, spiritual, if you want to use that language, tools, the emotional tools to have a great, meaningful, joyous existence, even in the midst of what's inevitable, which is we're in contraction. We're not in expansion. And if people don't understand that we're not in expanding times anymore, we're in contracting times, then they're missing the fundamental thing that you're not going to be able to understand the nature of reality or your own emotions if you don't get that. So those are the definitions of doom, and I, a, common, a common feeling of utter dread upon realizing right. that technological progress and economic growth and development are the root of our predicament, not our way out, a name for the anxiety and fear called forth when living in a coronavirus era that triggers an economic depression or, or recession depression, and the midpoint between denial and regeneration with or without us. So what is post-doom? Three definitions that we've come up with so far. Post-doom, first definition, love, trust, and equanimity even in the midst of abrupt climate change, a global pandemic, and collapse of both the health of the biosphere and business as usual. So love, trust, and equanimity, even in the midst of abrupt climate change, a global pandemic, and collapse of both the health of the biosphere and business as usual. Love Second of what? Love of what? Love of life. Love of others. Just that, that emotional feeling and commitment of love. Caring for something larger than you, other than you. Second definition, what opens up when we accept what is inevitable, honor our grief, and prioritize what's pro-future and soul-nourishing? So what opens up when we accept what is inevitable, honor our grief, and prioritize what's pro-future and soul-nourishing? And the third definition of post-doom is living meaningfully, compassionately, and courageously in the face of climate disruption, ecological loss, and societal upset. So that's, and, and the, the fascinating thing about all these Wait, conversations. Can I stop you? Can I yeah, stop sure. You? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I, I was, uh, there's only one, one word 
there that I, I I'm confused by, and that is pro future. Oh, pro future. Yeah, the uh, uh, it's kind of simplified, but sustainable sustainability. Here's the way I've been thinking about it: sustainable means being accountable to the future. Unsustain, unsustainable means being unaccountable to the future, and everything else is a footnote or a distraction. So, living in a pro future way that is in a way that's a blessing to the future is the essence of sustainable cultures. Living in an anti-future way, a way that's a curse to future generations, is the defining characteristic of unsustainable cultures. See, see what's interesting is, is that you just, you just changed the language in that second sentence. At first you said the future, and then, then you said future generations. And, and, and yeah, but future generations of, of all life, including yours. I mean, that notion of the seventh generation, you know, that that in, that indigenous notion of acting in the present, making decisions in the present, but there are members of your tribe that are imagining and speaking on behalf of seven, of the seventh generation. So making decisions in the present moment with the seventh generation in mind isn't just a good idea. To do otherwise is evil. The, 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 and, but you get back to, and not to cycle back, but like that's where I go like, yeah, I'm a humanist. I'm, I yeah. am committed. I am committed. I want to live in a pro future of humanity way. Yeah, sure. Which is very different than just like whatever, you know, like whatever happens is okay with me. Um, what, if, what if it's both? I live with a profound commitment and a profound love of humanity. There's just no question about that. It, it exudes every aspect of my life. And yet I also recognize that in an abrupt climate change regime, it's out of my control. And so if our species goes extinct in the next hundred years, which is definitely possible, I've done the heart work. I've done the meditation, heart and mind work that I can be at peace with that. And what's interesting is, is that it's out of my control. I go like a lot of it is out of my control, but there's something in my control. Like even if I'm on an airplane that is going to crash land and all the engines have fallen off and we're plunging to the earth at 800 miles an hour, I still have a choice between whether or not I, I scream at the top of my lungs or whether I reach out to the passenger next to me and pull them into an embrace. Amen, like, brother. Like, Amen. So, that, so that's a, what I'm talking about. So, so oh. hope for me is not optimism. That plane's going down. Hope for me is this sense of, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I, 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 I don't know exactly how that crash is going gonna, is gonna to play out. And maybe my hugging this person will somehow, in some way, make it better. Uh, we'll I'm, a, I'm a thousand percent with you. I, I believe that's where we're at, which is there are going to be innumerable opportunities to express love, kindness, care, compassion, generosity. That's what it's all about now. Yeah. It's because funny. we're not going to stop industrialism from hitting the wall, the consequences of its own actions. No, it's interesting because, you know, people keep saying to me, what's the book that is most important to you in this moment? And I think they're thinking I'm going to say something like, you know, one of the books that one of your one of your guests on on post doom write about, where like they explain how we got to this place or what's going to happen or what peak oil means, <laughs> and I'm like, ah, oh, no, no, Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> because the Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck is about somebody recognizing that the that their larger that the yeah. world around them is outside of their control. Yeah, but that they have some degree of control over how they treat other people and about how they face it and, and sort of embrace sort of 
taking responsibility for themselves. Yes. And for their family. Yes. In the midst of a situation Amen. that's far beyond their control. Um, and, and so I think for me, that's why I, when people keep talking about recession and I keep thinking like, you know what, you'll gird yourself better if you start thinking depression. Amen, brother. No question. Because no question. It, this isn't 2008. This isn't, this isn't going to last a, a couple of months. This isn't going to, the stimulus package isn't going to re restore our economy to health. Um, and, and so for me, that, that's, uh, if you say post-doom is about living in a pro-future generations way. And pro-present. Pro yeah, and pro-present. Pro exactly. That's right. Yeah. And, and yeah, no, what you just articulated is really the heart of this post-doom thing, which is to get the big picture, to get that there are certain things that are out of our control, and then find ways of being a contribution, a blessing, you know, find ways of exercising that, that uh, acceptance, equanimity. I mean, when I, uh, there's a mental exercise, you can call it a spiritual, you know, exercise, whatever the hell, but anyway, there's a mental game that I've been playing with myself for close to 40 years, which is that if I have some, if I'm aware of a possible, a bunch of possibilities in front of me, and some of them bring great anxiety, and sometimes even terror or fear, I imagine the worst case scenario, and then I just breathe with it. And I think, okay, if the worst case scenario happens, that's that would be reality. Can I trust reality? Can I accept reality equanimously? equanimously? And, and, and when I can do that, and for me, that includes the possibility that I could die soon, even in the next year, and the possibility that our species could go extinct, even in the next 10 years. If I can be at peace with that possibility, then that possibility and everything else between, you know, has no power over me. So then it's like I can live fearlessly. Living fearlessly in these times partly depends upon that, that acceptance and acceptance even of worst case scenarios like depression rather than recession. Because then if it is not, a, if, if, if somehow we dodge the bullet and there's like a partial recovery and we don't end up in a 1930s depression in the next year, um, then that's just gravy. But if you're at peace with depression, if you're at peace with extinction, if you're at peace with the fact that you could die, then if you don't die and if we don't go extinct, man, that's just gravy. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because we're all going to die. Well, of course. Exactly. Yeah. In, in some sense, this crisis, this moment is just a concentrated version of the reality that we all live in. Like life was always, Elaine Dubouton said this, life was always an emergency. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. like it, it always was and it always will be. Um, nobody gets out of here alive. And, and so in a sense, a moment like this is, it concentrates the reality, but it doesn't change the basic math. The basic math is, is that life is a brief and precious opportunity. Um, to love and to connect and to understand and to appreciate. Um, and that the fact that it's going to be taken away and that you live in the shadow of that knowledge doesn't, doesn't in any way diminish the opportunity or the responsibility that you have to make the most of it. I'd even say it's stronger. It heightens the, what I call sacredness that's, Well, that's life. what I've always believed. I've all, I've, yeah. I, I've, you know, as, as one who grew up uh, and spent a lot of time, you know, sort of peddling immortality, right. and 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 then and then gave up on 
gave, you know, gave up the ghost on that one. Um, literally, uh, <laughs> um, I found that once I recognized that my own future was, was, was brief, it, it, mm. it made my own life more precious. And, and here's the weird thing. And this is maybe a post doom thought is that people say, yeah, you right. Because you contribute to others. You love your kids and they go on like you're immortal in, in the other people. But what's weird is I, I think that it, after, after, reading Michael, after seeing Michael Rappert's movie and all, all that stuff, I came to the belief that perhaps the whole species was just like me, that we, we were going to have a brief moment, um, that, that perhaps even life itself might just have a brief moment. Um, and even if that were true, in the same way that my own life is still worth living, even if it has no future, Yes. So too, humanity is worth embracing and making the best and making the most of that we collectively, even if, even if you told me that every human being would be wiped from the face of the universe and that there would be no life left a hundred years from now, I would still say, you know what? Write that symphony. Yes, that exactly. Kid. Exactly. You know, you know, make that good meal because- there, Yes, it, yes, yes, yes. The value of these moments is not diminished by the fact that they won't, that they won't persist. Exactly. Yeah. One of my conversations with was Kevin Hester. He's, uh, he, he co-hosts. Did Nature I lose Bats you there? Last. Uh, I'm here. I'm here. Hello? Are you there? Michael? I'm here. Can you hear me? Hello? Michael? Hello? Yes, I'm here. Here you go. I'm here. And we're off. We're back to the races. Okay. Okay, great. So yeah, so you'll need to splice it in. My computer died or, or stopped. And then I quickly, immediately got back on and I could hear you fine. And yeah. I heard everything you said. And, and the yes, terrible thing brilliant. about me is that I can go on, I can talk for a long time before I noticed that somebody else. <laughs> it's terrible. It's a, pre, it's a preacher's thing, right? right Everyone right. can have left the building and then I opened my eyes. Yeah, right, right, right. Here's a, here's a funny thing. I was talking to my dad the other day. And I was trying to, we were trying to talk about whether or not he should get his money out of the stock market. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to my son the other day and uh, I live in a pretty rough part of the world. And he was like, you going to get that shotgun? Like not that you'd shoot anybody with it, but just so that if somebody came to your porch, you could, you could uh, shoot it out the window and maybe they would go to the next house. (laughs) And, and like, these are the practical decisions um, that somebody makes depending on whether they think it's going to be a recession or a depression. Um, you know, we're trying to figure out like, okay, do we, do we fix up our garage into a living space? Because probably one of our friends is going to, is going to crash and burn and need a place to live. Yeah, no, exactly. You, the, are, are you thinking that way too? Are you thinking in the short run, like, okay, how do I live? How do, how do I serve? How do I, how do I be pro future and pro present generations in this? You know, are you, are you doing any practical planning? Yeah, absolutely. I've got, I mean, first of all, the heart work is the most important thing. I'm not going to get a gun because I'd rather die with my neighbor than protect my shit from my neighbor. And, um, but I, I have already, for example, just uh, two weeks ago, uh, I, I wrote a letter 
and I photocopied it and put it in the mailboxes of all 12 houses on this Pacific Lumber Camp Road that we were in. And I said, you know, the governor of California says if you're over 65, you're not supposed to leave the house. I mean, now it's extended to almost everybody. Um, and he and my wife's 67, so she's not leaving unless she, you know, goes for a walk among the redwoods. But I'm 61. I'm healthy. I wear gloves when I go out. I keep six foot distance. I have sanitizer, all that stuff. So if you need me to do shopping for you, uh, let me know. I'll be happy to do that and just leave it out on your front porch and I'll be, you know, really careful. And I've had three neighbors respond really warmly and thankfully. And I just went shopping and did $70 worth of grocery shopping for this elderly woman uh, across the street who's a fundamentalist. And, you know, uh, at any rate, so yes, I'm preparing to be a blessing, to be a contribution, to do this work, to keep a peaceful heart. And I'm also at peace with the fact that, you know, whether I die in the next year or the next 10 years, and whether our species goes extinct in the next 10 years or the next 2 million years, both are inevitable. And I'm at peace with that. So, uh, but yes. Obviously, I'm going to be more committed to my grandkids and my kids than I am to strangers, no question, or other species. So I would love to get back to Ann Arbor and see my newly born grandchild who's due May 22nd. You bet your ass. <laughs> can, can you imagine, like, like, what do you, like, one of the things that I see, and, and again, my depression era reading, I yes. remember reading uh, the book, the, 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 the Worst Bad Time, um, about the depression. One of my senses is that a lot of times economic collapses lead to natural disasters and, you know, lead to to, to ecological problems. Sometimes it's the other way around. Right. But so I find myself thinking, okay, um, yeah, what do we do in terms of gardening here? Yep. Yep. What what do we do in terms of creating space in our house? Because I think a lot of us, developed country people are going to start living at a, it's, it's so weird because on the one hand, I think we're all going to have to live more densely. We're going to have to, we can't afford cars anymore. We're going to live more densely. We're going to have to have more people living in one apartment or one house than before. And then think, oh crap, with all this virus stuff, (laughs) like it's, it's a, it's a, you know, I don't, the, the economics are going to say we have to live together and the, and, and the, I, the I the saw, medical stuff is going to say we shouldn't. I saw a, a, an image yesterday that was like a cartoon, but it was actually an image. It, it, it said, what sheltering in place looks like in India? And it showed the side of this building that that every every all the apartments going up, like six stories, seven stories, all had balconies. And you had like 30 people on each balcony. These are the families, extended families. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean anyone yeah, who's no. traveled widely in, in 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 poorer places knows that you know that 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 people live you know and and I, I mean I was looking at my own house and going like okay Marty and I live in this house in the winter time it's cold we heat this place it has seven rooms yeah no there's like, no question. we shouldn't be yeah. heating it just for the two of us we right. should have more people in here you will just be patient so uh, brother just to let you know i've got uh, my batteries got running down and i've okay. got to actually drive back to the house in okay. order to plug in so uh, i'm gonna have to begin winding this down so wind me down like like wind me down with what you think like if if, if you had a captive audience of five thousand people sitting in front of you which you kind of do what would you tell them? What's your message? Nurture acceptance with equanimity, what I call trust. Like nurture 
trusting in the larger patterns, call it the biosphere, just accept the biosphere's wisdom and that there are things out of our control. And so we may, it's now a matter of how to keep the most generous, loving, compassionate, uh, loyal heart and make as big a positive difference as you can and accept the fact that hard times are here and it's going to get worse. And then find ways to be a blessing to your family, heal your relationships. You know, if you and your brother used to be close and now you're not, apologize for being such a dick and get over it and, and like get, repair the relationships in your life where that used to be close and then nurture relationships with neighbors. Even though we're not meeting in person and touching and hugging, you can still connect with your neighbors. So do anything you can to build community and nurture trust or faith or acceptance or whatever, and then find ways to be a contribution in the places where you can and, and, and do explore these post doom conversations, postdoom.com. Oh are yeah. Kick ass. They really are amazing. Is there, is there any one or two on there that you go like, this is the one, if you were going to listen to one, this is the one you should listen to. Uh, it, yeah. Or, uh, uh, David Holmgren is great. Um, Jim Bendel is awesome. Uh, Joanna Macy is awesome. Stop uh, there. Okay. Jim Bendel, David Holmgren, and Joanna Macy. Start there. Okay. Those are good people. Yeah. Hey, you, you know, it's funny because you, you, you said this years ago, and it became kind of a thing that I've said a lot, and you, you alluded to it today, is I've often told my friends, when, it, when, it, when the hard time comes, and I think it's here, I said, the people that are going to survive are not going to be Denzel Washington with an AK-47 in one of those post-apocalyptic movies, you know, with the with mm -hmm. the machete and the, I said the people that are going to survive are the people that know how to band together in small groups. Absolutely, no question. Grow their own food. Absolutely. Nurture hope. Resolve yep. conflict. Exactly. Um, That's it. And you so all it. this community building stuff that we've been pushing all along, I think uh, these are the lifeboats that Absolutely. will that will that the, the Titanic is sinking, and. Uh, you should, it, it's time to stop trying, stop waiting for somebody to fix the big ship and start manning the lifeboats. Yep. And womaning them. Yep. Yeah. All right, brother. <laughs> Go get them. I think this, I, this is a good conversation for me. I appreciate it. All right. So that was me and Michael Dowd. I got a little bit, I got a little bit expansive at one point. <laughs> it turned out his microphone had shut off. I think he would have stopped me. I think we fixed it. I hope you liked it. I hope you support the podcast on Patreon and listen to the LSD episode and let me know what you think of that. Let me know what you think of this. Let me know what I can do to be more of a positive force for good through this podcast. If some of you are struggling and you're looking for some counsel or some support, some coaching, some peer support, whatever it is, you know where to find me on bartcampola.org. I do that stuff. I'm doing a lot of it now. Some people are saying, oh, you're probably too busy for me. I'm not too busy. I'm not too busy. This is what I want to be doing. I want to be supporting people. I can't, I can't do it for everybody, but like if you're, if you're, if you're needing it and, and you know, yeah, there's, there's the rate. And if you go on the website, you see like, yeah, there's the, there's my hourly rate for that kind of one-on-one -on -one conversation. But if you really need it and you can't afford that rate, you let me know and we'll see, we'll, we'll figure something out.
Like it's, that's, I, I need, I need to charge so that I can do it, but I don't do it so that I can charge. And so I just want to put that out there that I'm available. Um, if you're jammed up right now in this time, trying to make sense of things. All right. All right. This was a good podcast for me. I enjoyed it. I know that's not what it's all about here, but it's something. I hope you enjoyed it too. And I hope I see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life.